As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Power Hour Excited to be with you alongside Chris Vanini. I'm Nicole Auerbach. As a reminder, we always start with this to be sure to follow this podcast on Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. We love five-star reviews and questions and comments. Subscribe to Until Saturday on YouTube. We go live every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday throughout the season as we preview and react to the weekend's games and hear from you, the listeners, on our Sunday Sound Off stream, which I was fortunate enough to be part of this week. If you prefer the written word, sign up for the Until Saturday newsletter and you'll get your daily fill of college football news right into your inbox. But right now it is power hour time and I'm excited to dive into uh, the week that is and the weekend that is ahead. Chris, uh, how are we doing this week? A little under the weather. I went out to Seattle and I caught a great game between Washington and Oregon. I also caught a cold Mm. So I'm uh, coming back from that a little bit, but it was a great time out there. I'll be at Michigan, Michigan State this week. You will be there as well. So I guess we'll see each other in person. We will. It'll be a power hour on site for Michigan, Michigan State, although no student paper touch football game. We will have a moment of silence on its behalf on Friday evening. Um, But in the meantime... We will dive into all of the topics of the week, and we've got some really interesting stories up on The Athletic this week that we're going to give a little time to, including a media survey that you did, Chris, um, and we'll also get into Penn State, Ohio State, which I was part of the group that we talked to a bunch of coaches to break down that game. So we'll get into all of that later on in the show, but we will start, as we always do, with the Power Five, five topics. We try to do it Power Hour style, and that would really be like about a minute per topic, but... We know that we never do that, so we'll pretend. We'll we'll go as quick as we can here. I'll start with number one. There was yet another NIL congressional hearing, a Senate hearing on Tuesday. The reason that this one was noteworthy and the reason that you and I listened to it was because new NCAA president Charlie Baker was there, new Big Ten commissioner Tony Petiti was there, Jack Swarbrick was there from Notre Dame. So it was a lot of heavy hitters. And The main takeaway that I had, because I think we don't get a ton out of these, but the questions were 
better this go around. It does feel like the senators are more educated about NIL and how it works. Uh, they seem to understand like what a collective was, et cetera. Yeah. But the main thing to me was that Charlie Baker and I think the others on the panel kind of veered it away from NIL at points and they wanted to talk more about just getting protections that athletes could not be employees. Like they want that in a law. They want that in the legislation. And then they want to be able to do other things related to, you know, athlete healthcare and all these other things that they emphasize that they're already doing or have committed to do. But it felt like there were the NIL questions and theoretically it was about NIL. But I felt like they're really trying to make that point of like, hey, just don't call them employees and then you can regulate some other stuff. But that's what we need. Yeah, it it was the most worthwhile of the 10 hearings we've had now, just because it involved the major players this time, the people who, to be blunt, kind of matter in this space and are the ones who are really dealing with this. Like previous ones. We had athletes, coaches, former athletes, whatever, people who are just not in this space right now. And what their opinion is on NIL does not matter. They don't need to be in front of Congress. This is different. This is different when you have a head of a collective, the Big Ten commissioner, uh, the AD at Notre Dame, the NCAA president, uh, and uh, some of the other people who were there as well. So, it, uh, but but ultimately, there was nothing new. We didn't learn anything. There were no big fireworks or things you wouldn't, you, you would have uh, expected. What it means for any sort of progress, hard to say. It doesn't seem like there's much. As you may have noticed, there are some more notable things going on in Congress uh, on this Tuesday that we're recording this. And to your point about NIL, like I kind of feel like college sports leaders kind of need to split the NIL and the employment stuff because like NIL is not, you're not putting that back in the bottle. That's not changing college sports. So employment will change college sports. And when you had those types of conversations, you seem to get more engagement from the from the people in Congress. When you talk about NIL and complain about NIL, you open yourself up to ridicule on on various things about money. So we'll see what happens next. My guess is not much anytime soon, but we spent two and a half hours watching that, wasting our time. So we figured you uh, should know that. (laughs) Number two, uh, Brock Bowers, Georgia tight end undergoing surgery uh, on a high ankle sprain to stabilize it, the team said. Uh, No timetable. But if it is the tightrope surgery, which you may remember to attack Viloa getting a number of years ago, that's probably like three to six, four to six weeks, which means Bowers will miss Florida, probably Missouri next week, potentially more. And this is a big loss for a team that is still number one, but has not been kind of operating on all cylinders. And you can make the case that Bowers won them the Auburn game a couple of weeks ago with what he did in the fourth quarter. So Nicole. How big of an injury is that? Oh, it's super significant. And I understand that this is a roster that's loaded. I'm sure they've got lots of skill players who can step up, but he's the best player. Like there's always going to be a drop off. As you said, he did basically single-handedly win them a game already this season. He is probably one of the best. If there are non-quarterback Heisman contenders, like he would have been one of them. And it's just, a significant injury for a game breaker, like someone who can really change an outcome for a team that has a new quarterback still working his way into the offense. They have been challenged a little bit from teams that we didn't expect them to be, but we still trust in them. 
it's just hard to do without your best player. I think about like the way that, you know, Ohio State is without Marvin Harrison, right? Like it's just it's it's not the same. Mm-hmm. And there's a different level of like the way the defense has to pay attention to you or play you, your like escape valve for your quarterback. Like there's just so much at stake there. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting Obviously, if it's a tightrope uh, surgery, it, it is something that gives you a chance of a quick recovery. So that's going to be an important thing to watch here. I think I've seen a lot of people kind of refer to this as like it's probably out for the rest of the regular season. That sounds about right. But here's another question, Chris. And maybe we'll have this conversation as it gets closer. But do you rush back to play if you're Brock Bowers? You've already won well, two national championships. You've given so much to this team. You're... On the doorstep of the NFL, do you test this out when you come back? I m- like my first thought upon upon doing this type of surgery. It's the type I, I think it's the type of procedure you do if you're planning to come back. You know, like if, if you weren't going to come back, you could do something more long term or, or take it easier, or do some other stuff. My 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 sense is that he's doing that to try to come back. Now we'll see how recovery goes. If it doesn't go well, if it takes longer, we'll see. Does Georgia make the CFP or not? You know, by the time that happens, so I, there there may be a few factors around this, but I'm guessing just kind of based on what we've heard so far, the plan is to come back. But things can change, and and I, I obviously would never want to tell a kid what he should or shouldn't do. But you're talking first round pick, you know, right there. You know, yeah, we'll I see. Just- yeah, uh, um, that's just a, a kind of subplot to to track here. And obviously, hopefully, um, recovery goes really well and that we do get to see Brock Bauer suit up again. But that'll be a question that he'll probably have to figure out how to answer at some point. Significant, significant injury in a weekend that brought a, quite a few injuries across the country um, elsewhere. But let's move on to number three. North Carolina. Number, uh, I don't know what they are in the rankings, actually. I was just about to say didn't have it. Number 10 in the AP poll. They were number 10 in my poll. They are 6-0. I think at this point it's clear the defense has improved. Drake May doing Drake May things. Tez Walker playing three touchdowns against Miami. They got a great run game. Things are clicking, and... In a year where I think we entered the season thinking about the ACC as Florida State and Clemson and then a gap, you know, it certainly feels like this could be a Florida State, North Carolina ACC championship game that we may be headed towards. Uh, Duke's going to be a factor and play into all of this, but North Carolina looks pretty darn good. And if you haven't been paying attention or you assumed the defense would regress because we've seen their defenses get shredded in recent years, this is a different team. And they're playing their best right now. They've had two really complete games since Tez Walker has been back. It's another weapon for Drake May. And you can really see why they wanted him back. They look pretty good. Yeah. You you look at him. He's like 6'3", 200 pounds. Like you can see that, you know, regardless of other, you know, obviously North Carolina wanted him to play for his grandmother and all those other things. But you can see that they knew this guy was going to be a difference maker uh, on the field for this team. And, and he has. And, but while all the attention has been on the offense, shout out to Gene Chizik and, and what they have done on the defense last year. They were outside the top 100 in scoring defense and yards per play. They are now around like number 50. So they've made a notable improvement on that side of the ball. That is as big a reason they are 6-0 and as any other. And I think a lot of people saw them beat South Carolina and then you saw them barely escape App State and you probably thought, all right, this is probably like a typical North Carolina team. but 
since then they've on they've been on a pretty big roll. They beat Syracuse 40 to 7, handled Miami 41-31 last week. So uh this is a team going in the right direction. Their next handful of games will be wins. Virginia, Georgia Tech, Campbell. They're probably gonna be nine and zero uh before you really start to pay attention. That's when they play Duke and Clemson and NC State. So it's a big finish to the year for North Carolina, but a team to keep an eye on because you may be uh, not realizing come CFP rankings that this may be like a top six or seven team at some point. Number four, the media poll that I did uh, last week put up the results on Tuesday. So this is the second year in a row we have done this or I have done this. Basically just kind of gauge the temperature of college football fans because look, you can't talk about college football without talking about television and its impact on the sport. It's, it's, as big a part of the conversation as many as any other sport that is out there when you think about realignment and everything else. So we got questions like, what's your favorite broadcast team? What do you think of Pat McAfee, college game day, uh, all these other things. And, and here are a couple of the questions with the answers that stood out to me. Number one, what is your favorite broadcast team? Chris Fowler, Kirk Herbstreet, they win at 38%, followed by Gus Johnson and Joel Klatt at Fox with 22%. Brad Nessler, Gary Danielson at CBS at 12%. Sean McDonough, Greg McElroy down at 10%. Nicole, as you look through the survey, did anything else jump out to you? I'm going to guess the Pat McAfee question did because that jumped out to everybody. Yep, that was the one. Um, I was super curious when you told me that you were asking it. I was very curious for the response because it's definitely been a different college game day this year. And... I think that the wazoo and the flag and the back and forth has has hit and struck a nerve with a lot of people. And I can't say that I was too surprised. I mean, these are fans, you know, who I think subscribe to the athletic because they're, you know, big college football fans. You know, they they probably have spent ah uh, god, I mean, how much time watching game day over their lives. And it's changed a lot in recent years. There's been turnover, they've lost a couple folks. Like Rinaldi, the Bear, um, you know, Maria Taylor, they've 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 brought in different people, they've structured the show a little bit differently. And McAfee is a big personality. And I, I just think like to me, the Washington State flag stuff was really frustrating to watch just because it's like that flag is part of the reason that people love game day. Like it is supposed to be for fans of everywhere. And it matters, like, if your school gets a five-second mention in a week. You know, like, it, it's not just about the teams that win. So I thought that was a misreading of the situation. And that's just the back and forth kept going on and on for, like, two weeks. It was just – it was too much. Felt like it was punching down. So, I, again, I, I think the the types of people who are really big college football fans, the type of people who, you know, I did feature on the Sickos Committee last year, like, the people who embrace that type of – the corner of the internet of college football – I could see how that would just really turn them off. And so it was uh, not surprising that there was such, you know, a pushback on to, um, you know, the the question that you asked and that, you know, so so here here were the numbers. Um, and then I want to get your thoughts on it, too. So how do you feel about Pat McAfee on college game day? Like it? 30 percent. Don't like it? 48 percent. No opinion? 21 percent. So that's a big number. It's almost 50 yes. percent of people saying that they actively don't like it. Um, was that, was that what you were expecting, Chris? I assume that like deciding to ask this question was expecting to get a response that was strong. 
I expected a polarized reaction. Um, anecdotally, you hear from people who have strong feelings on Pat McAfee and everything he does. The fact that this was an online poll through The Athletic probably skews it a bit. It is worth noting that College Game Day's ratings are up this year. Now, is that because they went to Colorado? Is it because of the games? Is it because of whatever? A lot of different factors. But, you know, I got some comments from people who said that they really like him. They they like that he's changed the energy for a bit. You got other people who are just tired of seeing him because he's a really in-your-face personality. So it, it was very mixed. Um, between college game day and big noon kickoff, game day had a 77 to 23% edge. So slightly down from last year when it was about 82 to 18. Um, so, you know, I don't think Pat McAfee's going away. ESPN has invested a lot of money in him to do a lot of different things. And also interesting because last year, I, I didn't include it this year, but last year I had a question. If Lee Corso were to step down, who should fill the spot? And the number one vote getter was Pat McAfee. It was not a majority. Uh, it was a plurality. I think maybe 29% is maybe what he had. Um, but now a year and a half of him being on that set, people have opinions. But ultimately, their viewership is up and some other things are up. So I don't think that's changing anytime soon. But the Washington State thing, the comments Lee Corso made, the pushback from Jake Dickert, comments that Pat McAfee made in response to basically saying, hey, game day supported Washington State where they were nothing. Uh, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and hasn't totally been made up yet either. Yep, 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 yep. I think that that's uh, a fair read on the situation. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, number five of the Power Five. This is our midseason Heisman straw poll results. Now, I think everyone listening here probably has a good idea who's number one. It does feel like we have a heavy favorite now, especially after watching him beat Oregon and those two plays uh, in the final minute. Michael Penix Jr., he got all first place votes from our staff. So again, we're at we're halfway. Doesn't mean he's going to win this thing. They do have some big games. Pac-12's deep. He's going to be challenged, but uh, we all are on the same page with him right now. Number two, Dylan Gabriel, then Bo Nix, Jaden Daniels, Drake May, Caleb Williams, J.J. McCarthy, then Brock Bowers at number eight. Obviously, he's, he's going to be hurt and miss some time here. Then Marvin Harrison and Roma Dunze. So we are very quarterback heavy, which feels right this year we are also still looking at a scenario where we could have multiple west coast quarterbacks in there interested to see jj mccarthy get in the mix a little bit i i do think as you get closer to the end of the season and they actually play some big games he'll he'll probably have some opportunities but chris it's like 
it's ultimately going to come down to, if you end up looking at some of these other players, it's like, you know, the most outstanding and prolific player in the country or like an MVP of the team you think is the best team in the country. And right now, Michael Penix Jr. looks like he could be both. And that's why I think he's the the heavy favorite for the award at the break. I was surprised he got every single first place vote from us. Were you? Every single one that kind of surprised me. I mean, we had 13 different people get votes. So like we had a, variety of opinion just apparently not at the top um partially all i guess because dylan gabriel didn't play uh i think that's what, i week. think this was just out of sight out of mind to be honest yeah that that, that could be part of it but it, it is still pretty open because michael Penix has a lot of big games coming up that is that are games for him to shine or games for him to lose and potentially fall off caleb williams fell dramatically with a bad performance against notre dame jj mccarthy is a weird situation where I think Shahan over at CBS made a point the other day, which was like, he's only ever been asked to really throw to win them the game like three times in his career. It's been very mixed results. You had Illinois, uh, TCU and Ohio State last year and kind of hit or miss. So we'll see with the Penn State game in a few weeks. We'll see with the Ohio State game, how JJ McCarthy can do there. But uh, a lot of people in this poll. Absolutely true. All right, let's let's shift over into our open bar segments. This is when we hear from you, our listeners. And as a reminder, every Monday, Tuesday, we will have a prompt on The Athletic where you can, uh, it'll be kind of labeled Power Hour Mailbag. You can submit questions. We will sift through them and answer some each week. You can also email me. I know a couple of listeners have started to do that, so please feel free. Um, we're happy to answer them. So we will run through a, a couple of them here, uh, I'll start with number one, and I'm going to tee you up on this, Chris, so we'll get your perspective first. This is from Richard S. Who is more on the hot seat, Brian Ferentz or Alex Grinch? And if you set a numerical standard like the drive for 325 for a defensive coordinator, what would it be? What numerical standard does a defensive coordinator need to meet to keep their job? In terms of a hot seat, um, theoretically, it should be Brian Ferentz, as he has contractual requirements to average uh, uh, what, 25 points per game uh, over their thing. And it looks like they're not going to get there. Like, I do not see a way that they end up getting there. Even if they win the Big Ten West, like, it doesn't seem likely. However, I also don't think he's probably going to lose his job at this point because there's a, they don't have a full-time AD right now. Kirk Ferentz has a lot of power. As much as we talked about the drive for 325 and everything that went into it, um, he's he's probably going to end up keeping his job at the end of all this. So spoiler alert. So I guess I would have to say Alex Grinch. There was more heat on um, at least, you know, by the end of the season, because USC is going into the big 10 next year. They're probably going to make some changes to prepare for that. So I would say Alex Grinch is probably higher in terms of a hot seat, even though it probably should be Brian Ferentz. Um, Numerical standard for DC to keep their job. I think like if you hold a team to like, 20 points per game defensively that feels like really good like I'm, I'm pulling up the scoring defense stats right now 20 points per game would put you 31st in the country like I think that's solid you know in, in terms of like doing a really good job so 25 points would put you about 65 so I don't know what do you think uh it's a good question I remember talking to some defensive coordinators um you know like a few years into the rise of spread offenses in college. And it was like, you need to evaluate defensive coaches differently these days. Like you mm-hmm. can't just necessarily say it's 
the points total or keeping them under a certain amount of yardage because the yardages that these offenses um, account for is so high. So I don't know if I have something specific. I think, you know, maybe it's, you know, you look at like, I mean, if we're going to be like crazy about like putting weird things into contracts, maybe it's like third down stop percentages or something or like Max Olsen stop rate or something like <laughs> Or like the old, Rand, the old Randy Etzel contract where he'd get bonuses if you like had a certain red zone percentage or something. Yeah, weird like, like I don't know. I mean, I feel like you could get a little creative because I just think points and even total yardage is just it's so hard because you could allow a lot, but you make a couple of key stops and, and we know that it, like. Oklahoma, Texas, right? Like coming out of that game, we were like, okay, like there was definitely like that Brett Venables feel to the defense, right? And they made they made stops, they made mm-hmm. you know certain stops, but like total yardage they allowed was still a lot. They still made mistakes, so it just it, it's it's a hard one to determine. So I don't know if I have an answer for that. I would put a bunch of like quirky things to check off, um, and I think it should be Alex Grinch as well because. I mean, we've already gone through this for a series of years of someone not being willing to fire their own son. Last I heard, Alex Grinch and Lincoln Riley were not related, so I will say that that is just like a a hotter seat. He has been incredibly defensive of Grinch and the criticism about the defense, but again... No pun intended. Yes, but like you can't play this way in the Big Ten next year. Like you can't do this. And I know that that wasn't what cost them the game against Notre Dame. It was so weird. Like, I think like I thought Notre Dame would win the game. I thought USC is going to lose games. I thought it would be because their defense, not their offense. So that was just strange in general to experience. But I think that there are still all these problems with the defense. Um, and you know, you're just, these games are going to be really physical. It needs to be reliable. They need to be able to handle like the offensive line of like a Michigan and, and stuff like that. That's just not possible right now so we will see what happens with that one as we get closer to the end of the season i I would add we brian ferentz should be on the hotter seat like i think we we agree with that and it's it's weird because like iowa could fall into the perfect situation of winning the big 10 west being 11 and 1 and being forced to upgrade at offensive coordinator like you couldn't ask for a better situation theoretically but i don't think they're going to do it i don't think they're going to they're not going to fire him if they win the west it's it's a wild world that we're in, but yes, like they could win their division and get to a power five championship game with the 133rd ranked offense out of 133 teams. It is possible. It really and, is And they possible. won't make a change if that happens. And they may not make a change if that happens. Okay, Chris, this question is for you specifically. Yeah, I guess so. From Rick A. Oregon loses to your number one team on the road by three with a missed field goal at the buzzer and you move them out of the top 10 question mark. This is what's wrong with the whole ranking game. People like you perpetuate the problem. People like me. So here is my reasoning. By the way, I didn't move them very much. I moved them to like 11. They barely dropped. The thing is, they don't have any good wins to lean on. I'm okay. Like, like if you lose a close game to a good team, that's good. It doesn't impact you all that much. But if it's the only thing you have to lean on, then your case isn't as strong. Oregon's wins are against Portland State, Texas Tech, which has fallen off, Hawaii, Colorado, Stanford. Like, none of those wins are very good. I think Oregon's a good team. 
they've got a lot of tests coming up. They've got Washington State and Utah and USC and Oregon State coming up. Like they're going to have their opportunity. But to to this point, halfway through the season, I don't think you'd be like, hey, we almost beat a really good team. We sh- you we definitely should be ranked higher than so and so because Alabama's got better wins. Texas has better wins. Um, a, a number of these teams uh, ahead with a loss have better wins. So that's why I put Oregon there. I don't remember where you had Oregon. Did you have him in the top 10 at all? Sure did. Sure. I had him at five. I came away from that game being still very impressed with both these teams. I will say our poll, our, our rankings are different. Um, I like to describe mine as very vibes based because I'll get people being like, you know, well, how could you say Washington was the best team in the country? They they won because of a missed field goal. And we'll get into this a little bit later in the show uh, as well in our happy hour. But like. I keep saying this week to week because we had a bunch of like massive games, but like that's the best win in the country. Those are two very good teams. Like I came away very, very impressed. I'm convinced that both of those teams could make the college football playoff. Obviously, there's a lot of contenders yeah. like the odds of them both making it together slim. But like. If Oregon wins out and beats Washington in a Pac-12 championship game, absolutely. Feel great about them. Like, these are good teams. So I wanted to make that point so I didn't drop them out of the top five. Um, but Chris, you 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 are more resume-based. Um, mine fluctuates, I think, more week to week than yours does as well. So just different philosophies in how we do our rankings. Okay, last question from Jason D., which first-year coaches have been the most and the least impressive thus far? Chris, why don't you take it first? There, uh, So looking through this list, there really are almost every coach you could put on one side or the other. There have been very few where I'm like, all right, you're about what, what you're expected. So l- let me grab one impressive, one unimpressive, and then I'll let you go next. Impressive. G.J. Kinney, down at Texas State, has the Bobcats at 5-2. and two. One and away from their first bowl game ever since joining FBS about 10 years ago. This is a program that had won no more than four games in forever. The facilities are an issue. They they sometimes have to use a high school team's indoor practice facility. And G.J. Kinney comes in there from Incarnate Word and has they beat Baylor week one. And they're five and two right now. And not only that, they got 28,000 fans at their game this past week against ULM. ULM. Like and they drew twenty eight thousand fans. Had a slow start to the game, but but ended up pulling away one by one point. Um, so shout out to what he is doing down at Texas State in the first year. Uh, a, a, a team I don't think we've paid much attention to, but they're doing a good job in the Sun Belt. Unimpressive. I'm going to say Luke Fickle at Wisconsin, which I thought and still probably think is probably one of the best hires of the last cycle. But to lose to Iowa like you did last week and really set yourself behind in terms of winning the Big Ten West is tough. This division is terrible. Like, it's always bad. Like, it's particularly terrible this year. And to lose to Iowa like that, uh, for Wisconsin not to win that division would be a really, really tough look, even in your first year, even with all the changes. It's the last year of the Big Ten West. That advantage is going away. And so I, I still think Luke Fickle is going to do a good job there and everything. But I, uh, after that loss to Iowa, I got to put him as, as maybe one of the more disappointing first years so far. Yeah, I think you laid it out pretty well. I would put that 
there too. Obviously, you know, Wisconsin has dealt with some injuries, but to lose to Iowa right now where Iowa basically is strategy is one good play. Touchdown. <laughs> yeah, one good play. And then special teams and defense is disappointing and frustrating. And like obviously there were there were very high expectations about the air raid and like an overhaul being more exciting. And it takes time to change a system. You have uh, personnel for a different system. I get all of that. That's still really disappointing, especially with the division, the way that it is this year in its last iteration. And I think, you know, again, like we've talked a lot about Deion Sanders. They captured the nation. It went beyond sports fans. So no one will be more impressive than that. But I love Jeff Brom, always have. And uh, again, I know they lost Pitt in you know, we spent that one week talking about like, oh, you know, there could be three ACC teams that go undefeated and not play each other. It was a fun like six days. But the actual build and, and what he's going to accomplish at Louisville is going to be great. I love that he's doing this for his hometown team. It was really special to watch the post game and everything as they beat Notre Dame. So I, I still think those are going to be just highlights that will continue to be played by the end of the season. So. Uh, some really, you know, incredible coaching jobs so far this season. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's stay positive. Let's move over into our happy hour segment. We talk about something that brings us joy, something we are excited about. Chris, I was very jealous of you last weekend, not just because you were at Oregon, Washington and ended up being a great game, but also it looked beautiful. Like it was like a picture perfect day to watch college football in one of the most scenic and beautiful places to see it. Please tell me how amazing that game was, what it was like to cover and just like how Seattle felt with a game of that magnitude they've never had a top 10 game between those two teams have you been out there before i have it is incredible um the scene the first thing i did when i got to the stadium by the way to get to the stadium i took the light rail directly from a hotel right to the stadium cost like three bucks easiest buy public transit that works well incredible concept more more cities should consider this thing. And I get there and I had to check out the harbor, Husky Harbor, the sail gating. They got the lake, all the boats out there. I went walking around the docks. The alumni band was out there. And actually, I hadn't said this publicly yet. I was, but as I'm walking around, I see a Washington State fan just kind of walking by. And then a member of the Washington alumni band leans over in his ear and says, Hey, go Cougs. And I was like, oh, man, that's cool. Like, like, I don't think anybody likes what's happening in Washington State right now. I thought that was cool. I think I, I saw Michael Penix's family walking around there as well. Uh, and then the game, that overhang makes for an incredible noise trap. And the press box is open air. So, like, you really feel it. Like, covering a game that you feel like you're there at the game. Sometimes you're at games, you're behind a glass window. 
you feel separated from what's going on on the screen. Not the case at Washington. Loved it. Big win down on the field when Oregon missed the field goal. Um, and we, you and I both put Washington to number one in our polls. Uh, the AP and coaches very much did not. They have them at number five. They only got two first place votes in the AP, zero in the coaches. I can't understand that. But shout out to Wa- I talked to people at Washington, by the way, who said that was maybe the best environment they'd had since like 1990, I think, when they played Miami. So uh, I picked a good one. And Washington, if you have not, uh, people, if you've not gone seen a game at Washington, that is a place you are going to want to check off. Yeah, all you had to do was watch like a couple minutes of that game and it just looked um, it just looked like a bucket list destination. I, I couldn't believe that the AP poll that Washington was at number five behind Ohio State. Like I I, assume, I thought that the lowest they would be would be three because these voters yeah. tend not to move teams down if they don't lose. So I thought, you know, they've kept Georgia up there this whole time. Georgia, Michigan, and I thought three would be Washington. It was not. They were number five. Only two first place votes. I don't understand. Like, I came away watching that game thinking these two teams are both incredibly good and both CFP contenders, and I don't understand how people did not reflect that or they're they're still not reflecting the good wins. This is one of those things where, like, this we'll get the first CFP rankings in a couple weeks. And they'll value resume like the way that you and I do Mm -hmm. or the way that you do specifically, but also like (laughs) I factor it in too. So I've been Mm -hmm. putting a lot of these teams like Oklahoma's up there because they have a really good win over Texas. Like all of these results that we have, like we've seen a lot of these teams play these big games and pick up big wins. CFP rankings will probably look pretty different than the AP poll. And then everyone in the AP poll will just copy the CFP rankings and we will revert back into a more normal set of rankings, but like, it's just so frustrating to see this and to think that only two of the voters thought that they watched the best team in the country win that game. Crazy to me. Yeah, I, it will be. It does feel like one of those years where the top of the poll has not changed very much, partially because nobody's lost. But when the CFP rankings come in on Halloween night, that that is going to dramatically change how people view the polls. So we will see. Yep, we will. Speaking of things that we were going to see, we got another monster matchup this weekend. Again, love this season because you've got more teams. I think we feel right now could be CFP worthy. All five conferences involved. And we've just had like these monster games feeling like seemingly every single week. And this week it is one of the three big games in the Big Ten. Basically have a round robin, three games that will determine the Big Ten championship three games that will determine CFP birth and Michigan doesn't have their two games until about a month from now. So we still got a wild way to go, but Ohio state and Penn state are playing this weekend in Columbus. I had a piece up on the athletic with Justin Williams and David Ubbin, where we talked to eight different coaches who have played either Ohio state or Penn state. And so we have kind of an anonymous scout of these two teams and the game. And then because you can't really talk about those teams without talking about Michigan, got a section in there about how they feel that Michigan matches up against both. But Ohio State, Penn State, fascinating matchup. Been looking forward to this one for quite some time. And there's just so much at stake, big picture, like the actual X's and O's. We dive into that. There's 
interesting areas where there's strengths and weaknesses and, and the nitpicking of teams that are very good and defenses that are ranked very highly. But also you just have to think about what's at stake for the coaches. Ryan Day has only lost six games in his head coaching career, and he's got an army of skeptics because of who they lost to and how they lost those games. We saw how emotional he was after the Notre Dame game. This is another chance to prove that toughness. It's really all about Michigan, but this is also a game that they need to win. And then under James Franklin, these are the games that he loses at Penn State. He has only gone one and eight against Ohio State, and the win was in Happy Valley. His record in top 10 games is abysmal, and it's even worse on the road. So this is a monster, monster game, an opportunity for them to take the next step, which is, of course, beating Ohio State or Michigan, but to try to do it on the road. They've got so much talent. Both these teams have, you know, relatively new quarterbacks that they've been breaking in, got questions about their strengths offensively, what they're doing, how both teams are going to move the ball against these defenses. It is fascinating, and I, I truly cannot wait to watch this one. I, I The most interesting thing I saw from the piece is that coaches seem to agree that Ohio State's secondary is a weakness. However, we know that Penn State does not throw the ball very deep. They, they don't attack a ton through the air. As one coach said, they don't need to. Like If you can win with all the intermediate stuff, then just do that. Uh, James Franklin was asked about just chucking the ball. He said he's not going to just chuck the ball. Nobody's just going to do that. But do you think Drew Aller is going to attack Ohio State through the air in this game? Like, like when you were talking to coaches, what sense did you get of what they feel Penn State can do in the passing game? Can they take advantage of what they see as a weak Ohio State secondary? It's a big question. And it's something that a lot of the fan base has been talking about. We have talked about the lack of explosive plays from Penn State is kind of mind boggling. And and just before we get into the passing game, the, the bigger surprise is the run game because yeah. we saw Nicholas Singleton break off big runs and um, Catron out like they, they, they did it last year. So it's just a little surprising that they're not. But I for, will for, say for, that. Yeah. For, by the way, that number, they have one play of 40 yards or more all year. One. Yeah. Yeah. It went for more than 70 yards, but but they only have one single play longer than 40 yards, running or it's, passing. Yeah, and and so, you know, when you talk to coaches, it's very interesting because I would say for the most part, and you can probably feel it in the article, like the things that people are saying about Ohio State's offensive line, the back end of the defense, people had a lot of questions about Ohio State, right? Like, and 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 I think that, you know, we definitely got, you know, we had a couple of people who said they would pick Penn State to win this game. And then a few others that certainly sounded that way. They didn't go quite so far as to say it. But they there was a lot of people raving about the talent at Penn State and about Aller. And they were emphasizing that they're not concerned about the lack of explosives and even that he didn't try them because they're saying what they're doing is winning and he's been pinpoint accurate of the short and the intermediate passing game. Like he's been doing what they need him to do and they're winning these games. No, no interceptions like it's working and it's not what we've seen in years past. And I think we all think that Drew Aller's probably got a big arm and we're going to see eventually more of a vertical passing game. But it kind of reminds me of the conversations we had around J.J. McCarthy last year. And, mm -hmm. you know, he, he wasn't doing much. He was really accurate, you know, inside of 10 yards. 
They ran the ball, felt really good about it. But then again, you're like, okay, well, what if a game comes down to those plays? Like how, you know, are they ready? Can they do it? And I I don't know if we're going to see them because again, Penn State hasn't even tried. I thought they were going to try it last week against UMass. And like, this is a stat. I had it in my top 10. I thought it was interesting. Like Drew Aller's stat line didn't look very impressive. They won handily, you know, two punt return touchdowns as well. So there was, there was other factors in the game and it's UMass, but Drew Aller was still only seven yards per attempt. So they didn't really try. They didn't really try to air it out or try to do anything in that game. And UMass was among the worst defenses in the country at allowing longer pass plays. They were allowing almost 10 yards per pass attempt. So I thought that was really odd um, because it just seemed like it was an opportunity to break it in. But again, we're not coaches. We're not in there. And what they're doing is winning. So I don't know if we will see it in this game. I would like to see it in general because... I, I like the deep ball. I think it's fun. I think it's exciting. It stretches things. It opens other things up. And it's just been surprising not to see it from Penn State. That's what that's what James Franklin was attempted to get asked by that reporter when he it got kind of weird. But that's what they were saying. I guess UMass, hey, why didn't you attempt to throw deep more often? It just it wasn't there. So that that is the number one thing I'm looking forward to. In this game, I, I don't know if we're making picks or not, but I'm picking Ohio State in this game. Even though all the coaches in your thing seemed very skeptical of Ohio State, everybody seemed to think like Penn State kind of has it this year maybe, think they get it done. I'm picking Ohio State. Ohio State has won 10 of the last 11, and the one game that Penn State won was because of a blocked field goal. So they usually keep this game close. There was a, there was a one-point one game in there, a two-point game, a nine-point game two years ago. Penn State usually keeps us close for like a half and then Ohio State pulls away. I don't know if Ohio State pulls away so much, but I'm going with the Buckeyes to win this game. They're four-point favorites. I don't know about I don't know about picking them to cover, but I just I'll believe Penn State can win the big game when I see it. And we haven't seen it. I think that's a fair take. A couple other reasons to pick the Buckeyes. Best player on either team is Marvin Harrison Jr. If you think he can break open a game, well, he's then then you probably go with Ohio State if you're if you're not sure. I also think that team has been more tested. We learned a lot about them in that final drive against Notre Dame and Kyle McCord. And Drew hasn't been in a situation like that yet. And neither has the team. And they've had some slow starts. I still lean Penn State. And again, I think it's because of the conversations I had mm. with different coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really like it's lining up to be now. And it feels similar to Texas heading into the game at Alabama of like, okay, if you're real, yeah, prove it. This is the game. Yeah. Do it on the road. So we'll see. But I, I lean Penn State as I sit here as we're recording and uh, it might change throughout the week, but I uh, can't wait for that one. Let's look back one more time. It's been a big topic of conversation all week and Dan Lanning has been asked about it at his availabilities days after the game as well. As we move into On the Rocks, this is where we talk about something where there's tension, there's some angst somewhere in college football. There's been a lot around Dan Lanning and Oregon's fourth down decisions in the game against Washington, but I think philosophically about how Dan Lanning approaches this. Some of this is just there's there's always kind of, you know, an old school pushback to coaches who rely on analytics and and maybe make more aggressive decisions in games regularly than traditionally the game has been called. But I think also in this case, like you love these things when they work, when you go for a touchdown before a half and it 
and you score and you got those points. When you don't, you just kind of write them all down. You look at them and you go, well, you lost by three points and maybe you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done this. I personally separate the decision at the end of the game from some of the earlier decisions and not having Michael Penix Jr. have the length of the field, take up more time to score because I think we all feel good about Washington scoring in that situation. So I understand that one. Got some other questions, but Dan Lanning has been questioned, I think, just at large. One of the things I loved about him saying, you know, in his availabilities this week was like, he's a big boy. He can take it. Like He, he knows that there's going to be criticism for those types of decisions that he has made. Chris, now that we're, you know, half a week removed from these decisions, you were there, you saw it all happen, you saw the decisions um, and, and the aftermath of them. How do you personally feel about the way that he approached those those calls? Yeah, so like I asked Dan Lanning about this after the game. I wrote about it after the game. And not every decision is the same. I agreed with the one to to go for it at the end. Regardless of analytics, I just think, hey, if we can pick up three yards, we win the game. Otherwise, we have to hope we can stop Michael Penix. I mean, like if I'm Oregon... I like my chances of picking that up, even though it didn't work. The one before the half, he kind of regretted that one. It sounded like he said, look, we came out. If we got the look we liked, we were going to go for it. If we didn't, we were going to call timeout and kick it. They got the look that they liked. They didn't just, they just didn't execute. However, you're down four at that point. You're starting the second half with the ball. I would just take the points, come back with the ball, start the second half. And also, if you don't get it, you're not backing up the opposing offense. That is the benefit, part of the benefit yep. of going for fourth downs yep. deep in your territory. And that happened later in the game. They, 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 the other fourth down that they missed, Washington started, backed up, went three and out, short field, Oregon scored a touchdown. So like it, it, it worked. The bigger issue is that Oregon keeps finding itself in this situation and coming up short. A year ago, they played Washington. They go for fourth down and short in their own territory, miss it. Washington kicks a field goal. Ends up winning the game. They play Oregon State. They go for fourth and short in their territory. Don't get it. Oregon State scores a touchdown. They end up winning the game. Oregon is went 0 for 3 on fourth down against Washington this year. 0 for 5 on fourth down against Oregon State last year. In between the six games, they were 9 for 12 on fourth down. So, like, they're getting a lot of fourth downs. They're just not getting them at the biggest moments. And I think that's kind of the issue that they're having is that they're not executing in the big moment. Those are three losses that could have easily gone the other way. And instead landing is sitting here. Oh, and three in rivalry games and you have to answer for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's also a combination of things I've, I've seen and heard some criticism of not of, of the decisions to go, but the play calls. Right. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of different factors that, that play into this. I'm totally with you by, uh, by the way, on the first half, uh, I would take the points because, yeah, it doesn't back you up anywhere when you all go into the locker room at the half. So we'll see. I don't think Dan Lanning is going to change. I also still no. think you know, he he his commitment to that, his defense of it, his owning of all of this, I think, has also attracted some new fans, including our Ari Wasserman, who loves Dan Lanning now <laughs> even more than he did before. OK, let's wrap up the show as we always do with the last call. Cheers or jeers. It's whatever you need to get off your chest as the bar is closing. Final round. What do you got, Chris? I'll let you have the floor first. My last call is, I guess you'd call it a jeers if if we're doing it that. And that is Pacific time zone for sports. 
I don't like it. I spent a weekend plus with it and it was frustrating. I like, I don't like having football at nine in the morning. You know, I'd rather sleep in and stay up late. This, you know, when you're out, when you're out West game start at 9am, that's fine. That's like, okay. It's a little early for me, but then also football's done by nine o'clock at night. And it's like, well, what else is there to do? So that was an adjustment. Not a fan. It was only the second time I'd ever covered a game in the Pacific time zone. The other was a national championship game, which was its whole other deal. However, because I was out West in the Pacific time zone, I did ultimately stay up to watch Stanford come back down 29. I think it'd be Colorado. If I was at home for that and I, it was 29, I'd have to, I probably would have gone to bed like most people did. So I guess I got to hand it to Pacific time zone for letting me watch that. We watch it on Stuart Mandel's phone up at the, up at the hotel restaurant we were at. Uh, but in general, Pacific time, First words, I don't like it. I'm going to stick with central time. You know, we call it God's time zone for a reason. I think it's the best. Mountain time zone is right there as well. I think central and mountain have a case for number one. Not a fan of Pacific time zone, though. It's interesting because I think our audience would probably be split because uh, a lot of people who have ever lived out on the West Coast, they swear by it now. Uh, I know. I still, I still love God's time, central time. But that's just me. Um, my last call been too long since i've referred to the taylor swift travis kelsey relationship on this show my cheers is to kelsey himself because it has just been delightful to consume all of the content related to this relationship we finally got photos of them together we got all of these like people who saw them at the restaurants interacting and the snl after party love that they went to snl and they did a bit about it and kelsey agreed to be in it um, my favorite video from the whole weekend, cause obviously I consumed like 50 different videos of them getting in and out of cars just to watch the body language and the hand holding and how like he kind of was holding her hands with two hands. And a lot of the Swifties were comparing it to like how he holds a football. It was adorable. My favorite video was he went to the Jets Eagles game because they weren't playing and his brother was playing and someone like threw him a friendship bracelet that said on the map. And he like looked at it and he like laughed and smiled and gave the guy a big thumbs up. And it was just like, it's just the perfect temperament. Like, I just feel like he's handling all of this so well. And it's just really likable. It's just really endearing. I feel like there is this whole fascination uh, around the whole country of people who are just like feeling the giddiness of like the early part of a relationship on behalf of these two by consuming all of these videos and and reading through and, and listening to, you know, Travis's podcast. But I just like I'm enjoying it. It's fun. I love that they are doing this. They look great together. Love that the families have been involved. Donna is thriving. It's just been really fun. And I just feel like Travis Kelsey has the perfect personality to handle all of this. Thought he was great again on SNL. So my my cheers is to him. I mean, I love this relationship. It's a crossover of all of my 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 interests. I don't know how long it's going to last, but it does seem like it's been long enough that we are going to get some songs about it, which I can't wait for. And that's all I really wanted. So I'm loving it. And Travis, you're killing it. What does this have to do with college football or uh, barely Ke- football in this, general? This absolutely <laughs> has to do with football. Travis Kelsey played at Cincinnati. He is a football player in the NFL. Why can't, what, there's no rules for the last call, Chris. <laughs> I get it. We talked just, about 
We talked about a student college, a student newspaper football game last week. It's yeah, it's it's football in college. The, that's the that's time, not that's really not athletic at all. I'm just saying the times I have brought up pro wrestling on here, I've tried to spin it back into college football in some form. But I okay, guess just former, the rules. I guess the rules are wide open here. Now, former so I guess college we have football a, a lot star more to from here. Former college football player Travis Kelsey. Okay, there we go. And former, former Notre and former Notre Dame game attender Taylor Swift. You know, people don't remember that you bring it up all the time. It's a great poll. I do, yeah. Because people went are like, to a game oh, is, in she, 20, is she a football fan? It was 09 or 10. Mm-hmm. She went to a game, uh, Notre Dame-Purdue game. I believe her brother was a student at Purdue. Um, she was Notre, gonna sit Notre in, Dame, right? Notre Dame, I'm sorry, Notre yeah. Dame. She was going to sit in the student section, mm. but ultimately didn't for, I think, security reasons or, or whatever. So, uh, yeah, th- these people who think she just discovered football uh, are, are very much missing it and not paying attention. Yeah, I, I knew she was a real fan when she said, let's effing go, because that's a that's a real fan reaction to an Eagles exciting fan moment. too. People think is an Eagles Nashville, fan? Tennessee, but she's from Pennsylvania. Yes. See, look at you. See, you're connecting all of this to, to football. She probably met Purdue Pete. We need to find photos. We will work on that in the meantime before the next power hour. Uh, before we go, I just wanted to thank all of you for tuning in here. Uh, we really appreciate you and we have a lot of fun with this show. So again, please send us comments, questions for our mailbag in the open bar next week. Be sure that you're following the Until Saturday podcast feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll be notified when new episodes are up. We appreciate five-star ratings and reviews. Hit the subscribe button on our YouTube channel. We go live every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday on our live streams and subscribe to the Until Saturday newsletter. For Chris Benini, I'm Nicole Auerbach, and we will see you next time on Power Hour. Power Hour.